Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I am your host, Justin Lamb, and this is October's bonus episode with Jenny Helms, licensed marriage and family therapist. She specializes in eating disorders, and that's what we are talking about today. Uh, the prevalence and how common these are is, is just really astounding. If you guys have listened to all of my interviews, you know that this has come up on multiple occasions, and it's something I think that definitely deserves a little more attention and a little more clarity, too. And Jenny was very uh, patient with all of my questions that I had, and we got a lot of great answers. I hope you guys enjoy this, and if you want to find out more, you can contact Jenny directly on any of her social media platforms, at Jenny Ann Helms. Or you can reach out to the podcast, Justin's Friend Request at gmail.com. But without further ado, this is my friend Jenny, and this is our episode on eating disorders. But I mean, I wanted to start kind of with a broad view of just like what's under the umbrella of eating disorders. Yeah, so there's quite a few eating disorders. I think that only two are typically talked about in school or shown in social media. So most of the time, people have a general and often false understanding of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. And they may have heard binge eating disorder before or the term binging, but they may not connect the dots to what that actually looks like as a disorder. And I want to just begin this by saying I see it as more of a spectrum to our like as our relationship with food and I think a lot of people can fall on the periphery or on the cusp of having an eating disorder and the disordered eating they struggle with can still be a manifestation of trauma of other things they're not dealing with and inevitably shape the way they end up living their lives and how they connect with people and and their relationship with food and their bodies. And so I want to say that even if people don't have a diagnosable eating disorder, I've met many people where it just seems like their life is still overly organized around their food behaviors and the disordered eating that they have. Generally speaking, I'm not going to like go into all of the criteria because that could take its own hour, but (laughs) Yeah, for real though, it could. Um, I did a diagnostics course that was six hours long, so I will. Well, this because this is your specialization, right? Like, it is. Yeah, yeah. it is, and it's interesting too because I wasn't. You know, I was kind of surprised that I would be the one like leading these CEUs, just from a perspective of coming from Atlanta, Georgia, and there being so many eating disorder specialists, and then coming to Kansas and realizing that it was scarce. And then of the people that did specialize, not many of them were out in the community, were out in the community advocating and talking about it and educating people. And so I feel like it ended up falling in my lap in a weird way. And I I guess I feel very grateful. It's not to say that I don't feel like I I earned it or deserved Mm -hmm. it. I just, I feel very grateful in the sense that I wasn't expecting it. And I, now that I've done it, it's just made me even more passionate about it. Well, I imagine Um, you having a personal experience there. I mean, that's got to be something that at least like drove you to wanting to do that, right? Like if some, if some opportunity came up for me with like behavioral addictions, I'd be like, yes, yes, I will be your, I will be your point of contact on this. Uh, So I imagine like for you, there was definitely something there. Was that something that led you into this field to begin with? Yeah. So In a weird way, I knew that I wanted to be a therapist at 16, which is not common for people. (laughs) I mean, I guess they were wounded healers like me going through tons of therapy, but I just started loving the process of therapy and going through through so much of it myself. Like I just, my faith in it, how I saw it change people, my own experiences, like I wanted to give back in the ways that I was given to. Yeah. And I had a really amazing, yeah, (laughs) and I had a really amazing therapist and that really helped me understand my own journey. And I just felt like I also just had that natural like skill set and desire and curiosity about all things psychology and family systems and all that stuff. So, um, yes, I love that. And I just wanted to give back, honestly. And one of the big things, too, was for me 
my family physician caught my eating disorder, but nobody else in my life really knew what was going on. And I think that was because of lack of education of the general public. And so for people listening to this, even if they're not going through an eating disorder or they don't have a loved one uh, that's going through one right now, like I can appreciate that you are taking the time to learn about this because the more that people know, the more that they can ask the right questions or, you know, get somebody an assessment or the help that they need sooner. And we know that treatment outcomes are less costly, more effective, shorter term, the sooner we catch it. I wonder, is that that a common thing that you find um, as far as people not realizing that their child or friend or whoever is going through this? Uh, Yes. So I wonder if that's common that you see like that people, because... And I'm going to see, I'm going to branch off on assumptions, which I, this is one of the reasons I want to talk about this too. Um, not only because, you know, if I've interviewed 40 some people and four of them have openly talked about their eating disorder, that's 10% of the people I've talked about. Uh, so mm-hmm. I imagine the prevalence is more than, than it seems, but also I have my own assumptions that I'm constantly concerned are wrong. And I've been proven that some of them are wrong, uh, around eating disorders. So I'm wondering like if they're not discovered as much by friends and family and people because society has this, you know, the image of women, like the thing women have to deal with constantly, right? Like how you should look, how you should, your body should look, how you should portray yourself. And I wonder if those stigmas pass on into people's view of you. And instead of people being like, you're going down an unhealthy road, they're just like, Oh, you're looking better. Cause they, you look closer to what I saw in a magazine today. Like, is that part of it? Or am I just vomiting out words? <laughs> No, you have a really good point. So we see this on on both sides of the spectrum where when someone struggles with restrictive eating, unfortunately, you're right. Culture, socially, people can very much reward that or compliment it or say certain things like, oh, how did you do that? Like, you look great or you lost weight. Like the, there's this cor- this like correlation with losing weight being a good thing yeah. in our culture and not really understanding the context of how people did it or why or what that represents. Same, same thing applies on the other end in a different way where when people are struggling with weight gain or if they're struggling with binge eating disorder, people don't look at their relationship with food. They just think you need to go on a diet or you need to have more willpower. You just need to start this exercise program. And that's what people tell themselves too, is they just tell themselves like, I'm lazy, I don't have willpower, I just need to follow this diet. It's it's about other things. And they don't realize that there's actually deep psychological roots to that. And so yeah, so on both ends, unfortunately, it gets perceived in a very twisted way by our culture The other piece is that 85% of serious diagnosable eating disorders are with people who are what what we would call normative weight or above normative weight. So normal BMI or above normal BMI. Now, I don't love the measurement of BMI. I was going to say, what are your thoughts on BMI? BMI sucks. I don't Um, know anyone that likes it. The idea of normal weight also kind of, I mean, I understand that we need data for medical purposes and I appreciate it from that scientific lens, but sometimes the normal without context really pisses me off. Um, But that's just because we're not, yeah, we're not putting it into context. I don't like BMI Um, because according to BMI, I am obese and like (laughs) I could, sure, I could stand to lose like 10 or 20 pounds, but I'm 6'3 and 250 pounds and like, you know, I have a six and a half foot wingspan <laughs> like I brought shoulders like <laughs> when people are like like according to BMI if I, I think I need to lose something like 40 or 50 pounds or something I'm like oh, I don't even know what I would look like if I was even capable right. of losing that amount of weight and so yeah. I yeah think that's where I'm like I don't understand BMI and I don't trust it <laughs> I I wouldn't either. Um, Just from a scientific perspective, it doesn't take into context varying types of builds, muscle mass. I remember one of my really, like I do CrossFit and I have a girlfriend who is, I mean, I'm not going to like comment too much on her, but like, I feel like she's like muscular and beautiful and wonderful and like so fit. Um, And she, it was interesting. Her company does stuff based on BMI and she was like in one of the upper thresholds, even though she's like, 
so fit and so yeah. healthy. And I'm like, so she was going to actually get a ding on her health insurance because they were like measuring BMI and saying she needed to lose weight or something. It was, yeah. it was so silly. Anyway, BMI is not a great measurement yeah. for many reasons. Um, but that's to say that I think people always think when they think eating disorders, they think the really thin emaciated person, but often most of the time actually it's somebody who's normal weight or above normal weight and so i want to break that stigma yeah that's super so it's only 15 percent of people that are even going to be again quote unquote underweight or emaciated looking um and unfortunately so in my process too i don't think people really caught it and and they were you know again praising me until it got to a point where they're like it's not cute that you don't have a butt anymore. Like, it's not cute that like, there's like, you know, until it became alarming, the amount of weight that I had lost. And I I say that's really unfortunate because again, it took a year. It took a year from like when I was first engaging in those behaviors to when I went into hospitalization. And I was lucky that I got caught that early. Yeah, that's, that's insane. So it happens. Unfortunately, it's very common because there's a lot of denial and lack of education. My family thought I had cancer. We got tested to see if I had a tapeworm or something else going on in my GI tract. Like we really wanted to rule out every other medical possibility. And that's why I actually encourage doctors to rule in first. So even if somebody does have gastro stuff going on, yeah. it doesn't hurt to assess for an eating disorder. Versus waiting forever to rule everything out and then eventually assessing for an eating disorder. Um, Can we take a second to kind of define some of the the more common terms like anorexia, bulimia, binging, purging? um, Yeah. What those are, what they look like. Because I think I'm probably I'm probably wrong about some of that too. (laughs) Well, it's it's a little confusing, and the DSM changes all the time. So it's, you're totally fine. Even in our field, we have to be updated on terminology and disorders and all that good stuff. But generally speaking, anorexia nervosa is when somebody voluntarily engages in restrictive behavior as a means to lose weight or to try to be at a weight that is lower than what, you know, they naturally would be. And they, they often, um, they could be Below BMI, unfortunately, DSM still defines it by BMI, but we see a typical anorexia all the time where somebody might have started at a much, much higher weight, and so they might even still be a high BMI at the end of it, but they lost weight in a very restrictive, unhealthy way, and they have this intense fear around gaining it back. Okay. They have an intense fear, and it might be body image related. I mean, often it is, um, but there's also cases where it's not body image related, and it's more about the behaviors themselves, like that process addiction and, yeah. and even just the control pieces, issues of over-control. But essentially, they are not able to have flexibility with the ways they eat. They tend to be restrictive. Restriction might also be accompanied by over-exercising, or they might eat a normal amount, but over-exercise. And that could also be another form of anorexia, which I don't what, think people what, think about. What's, uh, with, as far as restrictions go, and I, and I want to touch on this just because I'm, I'm curious with a lot of the trends right now are intermittent fasting, um, and I, I myself have done the Weight Watchers app where you kind of point out everything, uh, which personally I think is fantastic. Because if nothing else, it makes you like realize portion control. You're like, wait, 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 45 chips is not a serving? Hold on a second. Um, <laughs> Hold the phone. But, yeah. But with, with uh, I mean, with intermittent fasting, for instance, like, where do you stand on that? as far as as far as that goes is with restrictive eating right like because it is technically restrictive like you're setting this i'll eat between this time and this time um are there other things to look for that that would kind of push that over the edge towards anorexia or is that something that's not even in that plane i'm curious yeah i I don't ever want to give like black and white answers because i think people can do intermittent fasting in a healthy way. I absolutely believe that. I believe it can be also a means or like a gateway into an eating disorder for some people. 
um, or a reason they do things the way they do. So it's, it's a really tricky line. The difference would be that even with intermittent fasting, they're still encouraging people to get their calorie needs met. Yeah. They're still encouraging people to have variety in what they're eating and meet their nutritional needs just in a smaller window. Okay. So I believe that if people are able to do that and if that works for them emotionally as well in the sense that, you know, I would be interested if somebody's super rigid on that and can't like go on vacation because it's going to throw off their intermittent fasting yeah. or if they're not going to be able to enjoy social events and so they end up being like isolating themselves because they're intermittent fasting. That's when I would see it as a red flag. Yeah. But if they're able to incorporate intermittent fasting into their life and they get their nutritional needs met and they are not trying, they're not fearful of of weight gain or flexibility, then I could see it being a completely healthy thing. Awesome. It's when it becomes rigid. It's when it becomes something that people start to organize their lives around instead of realizing that there's so much more to life than food and calories and exercise. Yeah. Right. And so that's, I think one of the bigger distinctions is realizing like where, what do you spend most of your time thinking about? If it's about food, <laughs> And your next meal and how many calories you're going to eat. I don't know that you're living your best life. Yeah. I think about food a lot, but never how many calories it is. I just love food. Um, <laughs> I, I love food too. Like I get excited about meals, so don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. But I don't, I mean, I, I usually think about it before the meal, like at a, an appropriate time and yeah. amount. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. As yeah. far so as far as uh, bulimia and I'm assuming that will spin off into the definitions kind of of binging and purging as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go Do ahead. you want me to go ahead and dive yeah. into that? Yeah. So <laughs> with uh, bulimia nervosa, you're going to see binging and purging. And binging is defined as eating a large amount of food in a short period of time. And the, this large amount of food wouldn't be something that is socially appropriate, like on Thanksgiving. You know, everybody yeah. kind of binges a little bit on Thanksgiving. That's totally normal and socially appropriate. And the purging, w again, would follow quickly after that. And typically a short period of time, they say it's about two hours or so. Okay. Um, but it might be a three-hour window as well. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that's a little bit more flexible in binge eating disorder. But with with bulimia, purging or binging is typically eating a large amount of food. There's also often this feeling of it being out of control, right? It's not like something planned. It's not something you feel like you have control over. It seems very out of control and impulsive, and it's a short amount of time. And then typically, what happens is if you struggle with an eating disorder, you know, if you if you go on a binge, you your brain starts to freak out and it wants to get rid of the food or those calories. And there are different ways people can purge. So often people think of vomiting, but that is not the only way. Vomiting is just one way. Other people will purge by using or abusing laxatives, diuretics. Gotcha. Some people will um, try to do what they call uh, glucose dumping by manipulating their insulin, which is super dangerous. Yeah, but it's another dangerous. like. Yes, it's super dangerous. If you know someone doing this, please get them assessed yesterday. It's very, very dangerous. And But people do it, and it's a form of an eating disorder. It's like a subcategory called diabulimia because you'll see it often in diabetics. Wow. So if someone's manipulating insulin, that's also, again, I didn't, it's I didn't even form. know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is stuff that we've just been talking about in the last 10 or so years in our field. So... Um, it's newer for us too. And we're, we're trying to learn a lot about it so that we don't miss it because it is so medically, I mean, psychologically, all of these are dangerous, but that one's incredibly medically dangerous. And then, um, people can also purge by over-exercising. So if they go on a binge and then they like go on a five to 10 mile run to try to exercise it off, yeah. that would be purging as well. Okay. Or the last type of purging that people don't think about is that somebody could go on like a fast, like a fruit fast or go on a cleanse after binging. And that is also considered another form of purging. Interesting. So um, all of those, yeah, those are yeah. all in that subcategory of, of bulimia. 
which is not there, everybody understands. Is there other categories that require defining that I, I, I mean, obviously those are the common ones that I know and I don't know uh, what else is there, but I'm, I mean, I don't know. Is there? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, I could go down, like there's yeah. a bunch of different types. Um, We've got six hours ones, left. Like, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> six hours. All right. So bulimia nervosa, that's that. <laughs> Um, purging can also be present in anorexia nervosa, but we won't see the binging being like a full binge or what you typically will see is more restricting than binging. Right. So that's, that's kind of the difference. We'll talk, talk about like the two subtypes, anorexia nervosa restricting type, and then anorexia nervosa purging type. Um, again, not to get super yeah, confusing, no. but it is a little bit, um, there will be a test later. Yes. So <laughs> I'm I will fail that test. Um, and then binge eating disorder is where people engage in binges. And for both bulimia and binge eating disorder, it's once a week for a month. Actually, wait, is it once a month? They might have expanded that. But I think it's once a week during the month for three months. So it's like a consecutive thing that you do. So it would be typically 12 to 13 times within this a This is just like period. something... The schedule that people just instinctively do when they have this is that no 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 no. i'm okay. just saying for diag for diagnosis okay <laughs> i was Sorry. like wait do they just like things. slip into there so, and like i was like that, so that's a crazy binging. commonality <laughs> but okay yes well and i like i like to clarify because i'm like if somebody is binging at least once a week yeah. then they would have binge eating disorder if somebody is binging and purging at least once a week then they would qualify for having bulimia nervosa so let me kind of make sense yeah. Can, can I push yeah. back on that with a clarifying yeah. question? Um, Please do. So let's say, I mean, one of the most common phrases I think associated with diets, right, is cheat day, right? So yeah. if you have yes, a, yeah. a quote unquote cheat day, which would mm -hmm. be one day a week that you just eat whatever the fuck you want, what's where's the line between having a, <laughs> a cheat day <laughs> again and uh, bully, or what did you call it? Binging where you're binging, binging yeah. like, cause you said once a week binging, right? So if you had a cheat day once a week and you're binging, would that be the same thing? Or where's the, what's the difference there? Is it, it the origins? It could. <laughs> it could. Yeah. It's weird how like, again, technically it could, you could be on the fringes of having binge eating disorder. If you find that like all week you're kind of restrictive eating and that might, again, you might call it a diet, but really, I mean, you technically are, you're restricting your eating all week and then that day, if you, it's really more of that internal feeling too. Like if you feel out of control that day and you feel like you're eating to the point where you're feeling sick yeah. and it's not like a plan. It's not like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to eat at my favorite restaurant and have a burger and fries and a milkshake. And I'm super excited and about that. Pizza like that's, and some cake. Right. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's more planned, but here's the difference. If you're like, Hey, I plan to go have a burger and fries and a shake and then you have that and then you drive around town and you go to McDonald's and you pick up something else and then you go to Taco Bell and you pick up something else and then you go like that at that point it starts to become a binge. Yeah. And, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make light of this but you're you're describing yeah. a dream day for me. Um. <laughs> a dream day. Um, I'm going to okay so I will say just to be like this is my experience, but I did struggle with bulimia for two years. Yeah. And I know that for a lot of people, because trust me, I love food. And I, I, I get that, that sense of like, oh, it'd be cool to be able to walk, like go to all these different places. But when I was in that cycle, because I would literally do that, I would literally go from like place to place because I had a lot of shame about like getting too much food at one place. Yeah. Even though honestly, they probably never knew. Like they were like, oh, she's probably picking it up for her family. Yeah. Just kidding. It's for me. Um, but yeah, but I would go from place to place and it felt more like a nightmare. It did not feel like, okay. like I wish it was like enjoy more enjoyable, but in the moment it actually feels like like very, very trapping. Like you just feel like you're kind of stuck in it yeah. and you're anxious. And until you get that food, you're in that anxiety mode and it's painful physically. It's not, there's definitely a distinct difference. And I think people can kind of internally know when it's like, this is a very fun day of eating for me where I'm indulging a little bit. Yeah. And this is a, this feels out of control and I feel trapped and I feel sick to my stomach. 
I'm curious because you said um, you've said a lot of a lot of kind of uh, key words that remind me of uh, addiction, essentially, and some of the same um, bases where all this has kind of come out of. And I discussed this a little in, in one of my first interviews with someone that uh, has an eating disorder and because I, I think instinctively myself and I'd like to think a lot of people across society like relate eating disorders to, uh, you know, the, the visual I think is like, oh, girls looking at magazines, they see I want to look like this. And so that's what they're doing. And mm. from talking to people, it sounds like it comes from like, there's a lot of shit in my life that is insane. And I found this one thing that I have control over. And so that's, that's where that stems from. And like, obviously there's going to be body image stuff there because it, it literally affects how your body looks, but is it, is it more based in that control? And then I asked that because the person I talked to was talking about how the recovery is a lot like AA. I mean, a lot of mm -hmm. the, cause you're, you're dealing with impulsive behavior, right? You're, and you're dealing with feeling out of control and, and doing these things that you, it almost like you're out of body watching yourself do this stuff. Right. So yeah. is that, is it, is it based in kind of the same area as, as some of the addiction stuff where it, it something you're trying to control in an area that you feel like you don't have control over or am I, am I reaching? <laughs> no, you're not. You're definitely not. Reaching. I think generally a lot of like eating disorders, addiction, they all stem from very similar things. They're just different strategies. Yeah. And they typically will fit different temperaments better. So there, there is some genetics in it. So they, they say with eating disorders, when, when people struggle with bulimia nervosa, they tend to have, like you were talking about, it's more impulsive, it feels more out of control, and it's like very much like that addiction cycle. Yeah. And then with... Um, anorexia nervosa, it's really fascinating because people have issues of over control. They're overly rigid. And the only thing they struggle to control are their issues of over control. And so it's a, it's its own, it's its own way of trying to deal and cope with, with things as well, but it's a different strategy. Okay. And it kind of, it lights up different neural pathways as well. If we're looking at like the brain science of it, so yeah. that I find fascinating, but Bulimia nervosa has a lot of similarities with addiction because people, especially with, with, um, well, with food itself, that will light up certain receptors in your brain that are similar to drug and alcohol addictions. Yeah, like dopamine stuff. And, and... <laughs> yeah, 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 all that good stuff. You'll get adrenaline, all that, all that good stuff. And I say good stuff, obviously, like, you know, <laughs> in quotes, guys. Yeah. <laughs> don't quote me on that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then also something people don't understand either um, is that purging itself. So like vomiting, purging yeah. also uh, sends out certain biochemicals that are calming and relaxing and helpful for people. And so it's not just that they're trying to get rid of calories, so to speak. There's actually something biochemical happening as well. Okay. And so I, I could definitely see those parallels and there's a lot of overlap. So yes, different strategies, yes, different things to learn as far as like the medical side of things um, and temperament and that sort of thing. But the roots, super similar. Is it all, it's all based on trauma. <laughs> well, I mean, if you ask me, trauma and family systems. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that everybody's going to agree with that, but I mean, I think it's, I think it's a combination of factors, but um but yeah, and then exposure to certain experiences that, you know, honestly, I could have probably easily dealt with stuff having an addiction as well, especially with my family genetics. Yeah. So I guess lucky me for, I don't know, <laughs> what would, I know that there's like a better or worse, um, but I was definitely destined to do something, to have some sort of strategy to cope with things. Okay. So yeah, hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What's, what's next? I don't, I don't know. I don't want to jump ahead into like treatment and stuff, but if you want to, I don't know what you want to cover as far as all of this goes. So, well, I feel like I could always talk about all sorts of things as far as like yeah. 
what this means and diagnosis and all that stuff. But I would be curious, like, you know, especially I love that you're coming from a lens that is outside of the field, because I want to know what questions or information would be helpful for somebody who isn't in the field. So well, yeah, like, I what, mean, what are I might... some of the questions that come up for you? Yeah. Or other, um, or your viewers or anything like that, what would be helpful? Yeah. I, uh, I, I have a lot. So, I mean, I'm, I'm self-critical and so I'll come up with things like you're talking and I, like I have my, I said, I did like the Weight Watchers app and like you point out mm-hmm. everything and, you know, diet culture in general. Um, I just wonder how thin the line is between there. Cause sometimes when you're describing stuff, uh, I think about like people I know closely or myself and I'm like, wait, did I have some form of eating disorder at some point? And like, I know I have a like body dysmorphia, um, to, to some degree and I, everything that I've identified in myself or have had help through therapy identifying, uh, I've been able to trace back to some form of trauma, but, uh, I just wonder for people that are listening to this, that are thinking like, Oh, well I do that. And that like, that are checking off some boxes. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's, where's that line? How do, how do you, how do you self-identify if that you have an eating disorder and, come to terms with that if that's something that's not even in the realm of what you've been thinking about like maybe you're like oh i've been a lot, i've been really healthy lately i've been like eating only this this and this and i have i've stayed away from that and i've been exercising like you know x amount of times a day and and maybe they're listening to this and they're going well wait a second <laughs> no uh, it's yeah <laughs> it's super confusing cuz you're right we live in a culture where diet culture is glamorized most, if not everybody, has body image issues. Welcome to being human, right? Yeah. I would, I would say, like all of us could. I think it's useful for us to look at our relationship with food at some point in our lives and just do a quick eval and say, okay, do I have a healthy relationship with food overall, just for the quality of our lives? But when you go into those deeper realms, if some of the things we're talking about they're really resonating with you. I would encourage you to take the eating attitude survey, which I can send you a link on if Ooh, you want to yeah. link to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I will put that I will put that in the <laughs> in the podcast description and then I'll take it myself. <laughs> yes, please do. Um, and I don't look at the scoring before you do it. Don't cheat, right? Yeah. Don't do that. But <laughs> I think the scoring comes after and you can self-score it. If you find you have a pretty high score or even a moderate score, maybe have a professional go through it with you or, or further assess because that might be where you would catch either a diagnosable eating disorder or it may just mean that you have a lot of disordered eating, yeah. right? So I think there, there's a difference um, between what's diagnosable and disordered eating. I think a large portion of our population, because of the way we're taught to have a relationship with food via culture, via our family systems, struggles with disordered eating and it's worth it's worth looking into at some point in your life for your again your own quality of life and you know we are biochemical creatures so it does matter to an extent how we're treating our body and what we put into our body and that we are nourishing ourselves and not stressing out about that all the time so yeah yeah. i just think it's a general overview yeah and because the only reason i ask is I assume that when a lot of people hear eating disorders and anorexia, bulimia, like the conjuration, the image that you come up with is, oh, she's like paper thin. She only eats like four peas at lunch. And like there's a lot of stereotypes assigned to it through, you know, pop culture and and what you see in movies and stuff. And um, unless you hear someone like actively throwing up in the bathroom all the time or someone that you're like, I can see all of your ribs and I've never seen you eat food before. Unless you're in those extremes, uh, people I feel like don't really assign eating disorder to, to things. And like you said, most, what, 85% you said are people that are in like the normative or above normative weight area. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that's important to point out because even myself, like that, those are the images I conjure up and the yeah. people that, you know, like openly, you know, have talked about or struggled with eating disorders. Uh, it's usually because they get to that unhealthy point and have to deal with it. And that's why you know about it, right? Like 
the way you're talking about it, I'm curious how how easy it is to identify even for individuals that are going through it, let alone the people around them. Because it sounds, yeah. it doesn't sound as obvious as you might think. <laughs> it's it's unfortunately not. And one of the really fascinating phenomenons that I've noticed over the years is that most of my clients who have serious eating disorders who come in, they have this weird thing of almost thinking they're not sick enough. Like they, they have this narrative that they're not sick enough. And they're like, I don't know if I'm really supposed to be here, but here's what I struggle. Like, it's really yeah. fascinating that like when they come in the door, they're already still in denial. They're already still like, they have not connected those dots at all. They all, they still feel like they're not sick enough. And that's, there's literally a book called sick enough because this is such a phenomenon that happens in our field and it's so sad. The other piece too is, um, with atypical anorexia, people can have organ failure and serious medical problems happen even when they're normal weight or above normal weight. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah. People I, don't realize that. No, yeah. I mean, I would associate it with like after your body starts eating your muscles and your fat, like then it goes towards the organs. But I guess I don't think about the Yeah. One of, one of the but words. No, it's fascinating. Yeah. One of the words that has come up a number of times that I, I'm wondering if you can expand on is control. Because mm-hmm. I, I wonder how much of it is rooted in that, uh, whether it be lack of control over control, like in general, um, the people I've talked to, it seems like everything was chaotic in their life and this was the one thing they could have a handle on. So what, I mean, can you expand on that and what role control plays in eating disorders? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's one of the factors for, for some people it's, it's not for everybody, but we do commonly see control as either issues of over control, like I said before, under control and, Really, when I think about control, I think about anxiety because I think it's more about, you know, when you get into the deeper parts of it, it's that like need to fix, need to control, need to do something about what's going on around you. Or again, with trauma, it's that sense of like, if I can control things, then maybe I can avoid trauma. Right. It's like that pre, I call, I jokingly call it the pre TSD. (laughs) Like you're afraid something's going to happen. So you're going to do all in your power to like, and you're already feeling anxious about it potentially happening, but it hasn't even happened and may have not even happened to you before. And you still have pre TSD about it. Right. So it's a really interesting phenomenon. But I think about not having a healthy relationship with our anxiety and not having a way to feel and deal with past pain and and unresolved pain or trauma. And now the trauma could be ongoing. So for people where the trauma is ongoing, like there's no freaking way they can process it. So it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like we've seen a lot of things in the field of eating disorders where there, the eating disorder serves a purpose with like sexual abuse. You know, if I'm underweight, I don't get abused. Doesn't or if that I'm work? Over, yeah. I was going to say, does that, that works abused. the other yeah. way? Right. Yeah. It goes, it goes both ways, goes both ways. I was really close friends. I say was, I mean, we're just not as much in contact. She's a really good human being. And, um, I would, I think I'd be close to her if she lived in Wichita. Um, but one of the people that I was going through my recovery with, that was part of her story. And I won't tell too much of her story, but it was like, you know, being underweight. I, she was fearful of having a woman's body because of the sexual abuse that she had incurred. And it was ongoing. So it's like you can't – to me, it was it was her way of protecting herself, Yeah. right? And so there's so many different pieces to it and how it's a, a really understandable response to trauma. But when I think about control, I just think of that anxiety of like wanting to prevent bad things from happening or not feeling like you can handle it when bad things do happen. So you're going to do all in your power to keep bad things from happening. How, and things have got perfect and they've got to be yeah. whatever, right? You know, <laughs> and, and safe, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how to, and I, I'm kind of shifting gears a little, but as someone that's, that's recovered from eating disorder, how do you, how do you navigate that and, and kind of ensure that that's not something you're slipping back into? And if that's too personal a question, 
No, (laughs) it's a a great question Um, because things can be so blurry about like diet culture and everything else. Well, can I tell you Um, where that question's coming from too? Yeah, Um, for sure. Just because, so you you said, you mentioned you do CrossFit. Um, Yeah. And like I've talked to people that are um, recovering addicts and that's something Mm -hmm. they've gotten into. And obviously CrossFit is much healthier than heroin. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. but like I, yeah. I've, I've kind of, I don't want to say called someone out cause I'm not trying to like get the upper hand or anything, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've honestly questioned like, are you, do you think you're just replacing one addiction for another? And like my buddy was just like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but like, you know, again, not heroin. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> he it, like, I'm wondering if you have to navigate that same area and if, or maybe your clients, like if there's, if that's pressure that has to be put on when you get into things that are like, um, you know, CrossFit is, is, is viewed as kind of extreme fitness. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. is that something when you're in that realm, you have to be like, this is okay for me. Or is it something like I need to kind of tiptoe around? Like, what does that look like for someone in recovery? That's a, that's a really good question. I, so in my, in my recovery journey slash story, um, I was undiagnosable at 18, but I wouldn't say that I fully recovered until like probably 19 or 20 in the sense that like my brain had just completely changed how it had organized itself around life. Like I do not obsess over food or working out. Like I do not organize my life around that in any way. Now, do I love CrossFit and is it fun for me to go and be with my friends and do that? Yeah. But the minute I get sick or if I stayed up too late or if I am not feeling it, I'm not going to the gym and that's okay. Like it's not going to weigh on me all that day. Um, I know for me, moving a little bit is healthy for me and for depression. Like I, I struggle with depression and stuff if I just don't move. Yeah. So like even when I was like in, um, my recovery, um, I remember being like, can I just go on a walk? And it wasn't even for calories. Like I had no idea how many, it wasn't like, I did not yeah. care about that. I just was like, just need to move. I just need to be able to go on a walk. And yeah. I would go on like a 40 minute walk and it was night and day for me if I actually would go on a walk or not yeah. as far as like my mental health. So there's, for me, there's definitely like a mental health component of like something about moving just, you know, consistently yeah. throughout my week is important. But I have flexibility with that. There's, there's not that rigidity that you'll see in like a process addiction. Like a process addiction would be more like, um, you know, if I started to get to a space, like I have to be there. Yeah. And if I don't, I'll feel anxious all day or apply shame uh, to yourself and shame. Yeah. yeah. Or like, Oh, I've got to stick to a certain program or I've got to do like, I, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like having some structure, but like, if the structure gets messed up, okay. Does it impact my vacations? Heck no. Like I went to Ecuador for three weeks, didn't do CrossFit at all. That was just, and it was so fun. Like I had a great adventure there. Um, So fun. And it took me like two months to get back my strength that I lost, but I was like, you know what? Totally worth it. Like I'm cool with that. Um, And it wasn't, yeah, I just, I didn't feel any shame or weirdness around that. Um, do you think that's kind of a key component there? Like if you have that like out of control or like where you're kind of putting yourself down the shame piece, like, do you think that's a key component to recognizing whether or not that's a healthy behavior? Yes. If there's, if there's shame, if anxiety comes up for you, or if you find that you have a strong emotional reaction whenever your scheduled CrossFit or scheduled whatever gets messed with that's when like you might need to evaluate it. Like, yeah, it's a bummer when you have to change schedules or maybe a little annoying, but if you're like mad or if you're like anxious or you know what I'm saying? Like if there's a strong emotional reaction, there's probably something bigger there. Okay. So I don't, I think, I think I have to check. I mean, just to be, I mean, as a human, I have to check in on that in every area of my life. Right. Um, Cause I, as a human, again, I, I am more predisposed to having like, either a process addiction or whatever. Um, I'll say with the eating disorder stuff, for the most part, I really don't stress about going backwards in that in the sense that like, I feel like I've worked the behaviors out of the job 
because I've, I've worked through a lot of trauma and it just, they honestly don't make sense to me anymore. Like to do that, like it's a, it's a really cool feeling of like how I felt like I was as a kid. Like if somebody had told me, Hey, you got to do this or, you know, let's like, it just, it's not appealing. It doesn't, it honestly just doesn't make sense to me. I wonder, and I, and I'm curious about this because just in, in general in recovery for anything, um, Mm -hmm. when you're older, like, I mean, for instance, I quit drinking, what, 15 months ago or something now. Um, and I, I mean, I personally, because I vilified alcohol so much, I literally like shifted how my mind looked at alcohol and I still like think it's fucking ridiculous, but, um, but a lot of people that, that quit drinking or quit using, um, you know, there's a commonality of like, I'm, they, they'll still call themselves an addict for the rest of their lives or they'll be mm-hmm. in recovery for the rest of their lives. But I'm wondering if because you addressed it at such a young age and because like the brain isn't really fully developed until around 25 or whatever, if you think that that has something to do with that mindset to where, cause I feel like I get the impression that you're kind of like, I did it. I, re- I recovered from it and like, I got out of it. Like, it doesn't sound like that was that's a part of you anymore as far as something that you're concerned with. I mean, would you call yourself still in recovery or would you just say like, I did that and it's over with? Because it sounds like your brain, because your brain was in, my question is because your brain was like in such a moldable place still at 19, 20 years old, do you think you were able to completely change how that worked and it's not even like a part of you anymore? Does that question you make that- sense? Yeah, it totally does. It's a it's a great question because this this does come up quite a bit when I do talk to people in different fields. First things first, I am a healing human, so even if it's not recovery from an eating disorder, I feel like we're all in recovery in the sense of like trying to find our way back to our true core healthy selves. Yeah. Amongst like the unresolved trauma stuff and whatever lenses and muck and whatever comes up that impacts our relationships and the triggers and all of that. Like, I think we're all technically humans in recovery, so to speak. Does that make sense? But I wouldn't call myself like a recovering eating disorder or like a recovering addict or, you know, I wouldn't call it's just that, you know, I'm on this journey for sure. Um, So I definitely still have things that I'm working through and healing and, yeah. I mean, most of, for me right now, at least as far as the lens of what my brain is allowing me to see, it's, it's mostly relational trauma stuff that I'm still working through. Um, and yeah, that's been a really cool journey to be on. And I, it's been interesting in the eating disorder world, we were taught that it wasn't really helpful to identify with the eating disorder. So, or to create our identity around that, because that was part of the issue is that so many people like their identity was the eating disorder. And so they were, people were often, um, we often kind of had a clash as far as like the addiction world because addiction world's like, I'm an addict. Let me own this. Cause there's part of that, like accountability piece and ownership piece. And I believe there needs to still be ownership, but I personally, even in the work that I've done with, with all sorts of different types of people, eating disorders or not, I find it more helpful to say, that I have this part, like I have an addict part or like I struggle with addiction versus making it who you are because I don't think anybody's an addict at their core. Like yeah. none of us. Like yeah. I think that the the addiction makes sense in context. It makes sense as a response to things. It's like a part that has been super like helpful and has tried to be protective for people even though it's done a ton of damage. Yeah. So let me be clear about that. It could still do a lot of damage even if it was originally serving to help. Um, it can be the part that drives the bus for people, so to speak, like a lot, like day in and day out. So they feel like it's who they are, but the way that I make sense of things, I don't see people as addicts. Like, I don't think that's their core self. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Does that make uh, sense? yeah. And I, I think too, one of the things I've seen, I don't know if you've seen this, but I also see people like overly identify with recovery. Yeah. Now I know that sounds weird because people are like, Oh, recovery is a good thing, but Sometimes people make like their identity, like recovery. And I'm like, that's not who you are either. Like you're more than just your recovery too. 
And so I, I found people that it's almost like they've kind of transferred their identity with like addiction or eating disorders into now I'm in recovery. And that's like part of their identity. Yeah. They become so addicted really to the recovery. <laughs> yes. Like it's like they hold yeah. on to this piece and it's like, and you'll, yeah, it's like a, it's a weird thing where their life revolves around the fact that they're in recovery. Yeah. Well, I know there's with AA, there's a, a big contested thing with like, what is, I don't know the exact thing, but what is it, 90, 90 meetings in 90 days or something? Like there's there's something in the beginning you're supposed to commit to going like every day for three months or something. Um, yeah. Which I mean, yeah, to me, that sounds a, that sounds a little crazy. <laughs> and that's coming from someone who like has been sober for <laughs> a while. But I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I, I, think, I think the intention behind it is good, but I think yeah. sometimes, so... 12 step I think has been really helpful for a lot of people in the community aspect. And there's so many wonderful, amazing things about it. And like any system, it's going to have things that like, I think people get a little too, like they get, they hone in on that one thing and think, Oh, this is what it all is. And it's like, no, it's big picture. It's something different. Um, but I think that whole idea of like, it has to be 90 days or like you screwed it up or something like, (laughs) I think, I think I'm with you. I think that's a little rigid in and of itself. Again, people can get like addicted or too overly focused on recovery as well, which is really fascinating to me. Um, But I've seen that too. And actually sometimes I've seen in the eating disorder world where it's almost like people will stay in and out of recovery because they don't know, like recovered is scary for them because they're like, well, who the F am I if I'm not this? Yeah. And that's a really hard existential question. Been there. <laughs> it's, so, that's a tough same. one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Still figuring out pieces of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, yeah. It's And I think like half the work I do with people in recovery is figuring out who the heck they are if they are not their eating disorder. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Um, um, I mean, I'm, I think I'm out of questions, but I don't know oh, if okay, there was perfect. stuff that you wanted. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I think this is good. And if anything, like if people have questions or like, I really want to delve more into this part of eating disorders or whatever, yeah, I'm so happy to talk about it or body image. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think I'm good for, for today though. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll post that eating, um, analysis quiz. Is that what it is? It's eating attitudes survey. Eating don't, attitudes don't survey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you wouldn't know that unless yeah. you're in this. Well, place. I'm going um, yeah. to link to it. Send 26. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Perfect. I'll send that, I'll send that your way um, right after we end our phone call. So. And then people <laughs> can find you, Jenny Ann Helms, right? On social media. Yes. Ask you some questions and whatnot. Absolutely. Just uh, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, TikTok, all that good stuff. my fave. <laughs> I know. I've, I really, really enjoyed it. I am so surprised at how much I've enjoyed that. Mm-hmm.